Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I am your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have our annual editor's update from the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. While a year ago, this conversation was just with the editor-in-chief, Dr. Bill Mallon, today there is actually a family of journals under the JSCS umbrella. So today we have the good fortune to also be joined by Dr. Ted Blaine and Dr. Mike Weider, the co-editors for Seminars in Arthroplasty. Dr. Blaine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter and Rachel. It's great to be here. Dr. Weider, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Peter, Rachel, Bill. Uh, hope everybody's having a great evening and I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, Dr. Mellon, let's get started with you. Can you tell us about your decision to create this family of journals? We've seen this in a lot of uh, medical and orthopedic journals in particular, and JSCS um, and your, your work with JSCS has really taken this to a whole new level. What spurred this decision from your standpoint? Well, when I started as editor of uh, JSCS, which was 2008, that year, um, there were 480 articles submitted to the journal. Uh, last year, 2020, we had 1,800 articles submitted. So um, about three and a half times as many as when I started uh, 12 years ago. And the problem was that our acceptance rate was getting very low. Uh, it was down around 20%, which isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, for, that's about what like, JBJS is, or even a little lower. But JSES, I used to say, is sort of an end-stage subspecialty journal. Uh, you know, many of these articles that we would reject, which were pretty good articles, uh, the authors would say to me, can't you reconsider? I mean, where else can I send? And there really wasn't another place to send this for good shoulder and elbow articles. And it became obvious to me we needed more outlet for more articles because we were rejecting an awful lot of good articles. So tell me, so then... You felt like there was these rejections, and then tell me from there what were the next steps. You know, tell us uh, how you, how you form formate, formulated the journals from there. What's the flavor for each of them? Well, uh, we started with uh, JSCS International, which actually its original name was JSCS Open Access. That started in 2017, and even with that, we were still getting a ton of articles submitted and rejecting a lot of them. And a lot of them were either review articles uh, or um, articles on shoulder arthroplasty. And especially for shoulder arthroplasty, there was no place to go because about 10 years ago, you know, I actually had a couple articles submitted, you know, 20, 25 years ago in Journal of Arthroplasty on shoulder arthroplasty. But about 10 years ago, Journal of Arthroplasty said they're not going to do anything except hip and knees. So there was no real good outlet for shoulder arthroplasty articles. And we were rejecting so many review articles because we were getting so many and we can't, we didn't really have the pages to publish a lot of them that I thought we had room to start an arthroplasty journal and uh, a review article journal. Okay, so tell, and tell us what are the, so we had the open access journal, tell what are the, the, the titles of journals right now 
Uh, well, the main journal is still Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery, or JSCS. Then there's JSCS International, uh, which is edited by Pierre Mansat uh, out of Lyon, France. And um, that, that has no special focus. Uh, it's really just uh, sort of like when JB, JBJS had a British and an American edition, it's really a, sort of an international or a European edition uh, of JSCS. And then the uh, journal that uh, um, Ted and Michael edit is uh, Seminars in Arthroplasty, JSES, um, which focuses on uh, both shoulder and elbow arthroplasty. And then the final journal is called JSES Reviews, Reports, and Techniques, although we usually refer to it as JSES RRT, um, which you know, looks to publish mostly review articles and uh, case reports. Uh, kind of, you know, the two ends of the uh, spectrum on articles. Uh, it'll publish technique articles, but we don't really get a lot of those. Dr. Blaine, can you tell us a little bit about your experience so far with seminars in arthroplasty? How's that been going for you? How have you seen the, the quality of the articles, the quantity that gets submitted? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's been fantastic. I mean, I think to echo some of the the comments that Bill already made. I mean, all credit to, to Bill Mallon and to the board for having the vision to to put this together because I think it's been fantastically successful so far and and uh, is only getting better and better. Um, you know, I mean, just to give some perspective, we, you know, Michael and I uh, sort of saw things from the the other side. You know, Bill was seeing things from the editorial side, whereas you know we were seeing and discussing this over the last eight to ten years how. So, you know, as authors and researchers and, and uh, faculty members, we really couldn't, you know, find a place to publish the, the work that some of us were doing. And we saw that there were so many other, you know, papers that, that just couldn't be accepted. There just wasn't enough of a, of a forum for them. So, you know, we, we uh, Michael and I started off, I think Bill mentioned this with a, another journal, uh, which we started in 2017 called the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Arthroplasty. Uh, through a different publisher, and then um, you know we've had we had uh, submissions over those three years from 2017 through 2020, which I think we published about 20 papers a year on average. And then you know uh, we're able to to come over to um, to the JSCS family of journals uh, again, thanks to the vision of Bill, and we've just seen an incredible increase. I mean, I think we had 175 uh, publications, 175 submissions in the past year. Uh, and published 48 in the first year. And remember, this just started uh, as of last February. The first issue was in May. So four issues, uh, 48 publications, 25 in queue for the next year. Um, so it, it's really just been fantastically successful. And, and uh, I think it's just going to continue to grow. Well, that's, th those numbers are incredible. I mean, talk about a, a rocket ship for quick growth. Dr. Weider, tell us a little bit about what you think seminars and arthroplasty offers to readers and authors. Yeah, it uh, you know it's a, a forum for original research, uh, both on the basic science, laboratory side, and clinical side for uh, studies in arthroplasty of shoulder and elbow. And you know, just to add what Ted and Bill had said. You know, I was on the receiving end of some of these rejections from JSES over the, you know, 20 years of my career. And it got to the point where you would have a really quality study and, 
you know, you could try JBJS, but we all know that's really hard to get published in. And so your, you know, go-to journal has always been JSES. And if you got a rejection letter from them, there was really nowhere to go with your study other than maybe one of the throwaway journals. So for many years, I thought to myself, we need a journal for shoulder and elbow arthroplasty. And uh, of course, our meeting Ted and I were at, we were just chatting and, you know, catching up on things. And somehow the topic came up. And I told Ted my idea for a new journal. And I said, you know, I've been kicking this around for a while, but it's just, I'm so busy. I can't, you know, find the time to do it and everything. And Ted said, that sounds like a great idea, Mike. I'll help you and let's do it together. And that was really kind of when it started. I think maybe that conversation was in 2015. And uh, we, you know, searched for publishers and eventually launched JSEA uh, in 2017 and then made the transition over to seminars when Bill and uh, Jeff Abrams contacted Ted and I and said, you know, we know what you guys are doing and we understand why. It looks like you're doing a good job with it. Here's what we'd like to do with JSES and create this family of journals. And we have an opportunity to take over seminars and arthroplasty, which was at the time a hip and knee arthroplasty journal. And uh, I believe it was Seth Greenwald uh, was the editor and he was shutting it down and uh, ending his hip and knee course. And so the title became available and um, they wanted to take that title on into the JSES, under the JSES umbrella and create the new journal. And uh, Ted and I just jumped at the chance. So it's really been wonderful. Articles that get submitted to JSES that are quality, but don't get accepted. Uh, Bill makes a decision whether or not it's quality and if it is they'll suggest you know apologize that it's you know not accepted for jse's publication but recommends that the authors consider transferring it to uh seminars and it's been uh, fabulous we have i don't know what the conversion rate or transfer rate is but it would seem to me that most of these studies that are given their authors given the opportunity uh, take Bill up on it and transfer the submission over to seminars and arthroplasty. And like Ted said, we've in less than a year of existence had over 175 submissions. And not not only that, but um, you know, Ted said that they published 48 articles in a year. Actually, they published 48 articles in six months. I think the first issue only came out in June. Is that correct, Mike, Michael, or Ted? I think the first was July. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very quickly. Well, I love the story you guys tell about kind of joining forces and joining what you were doing on your own. That was a great idea with what JSCS was doing. And I think it's a, such a great reflection of our field and our willingness to work together. Something Michael said about, you know, when it got rejected by JBJ or JSCS, and they'd send it to clinical ortho or, you know, sometimes AJSM, not so much for arthroplasty. What, you know, I, I read AJSM and arthro, arthroscopy each month, and I don't like seeing good articles in there on, on shoulders and elbows because I want them to be in our journal. And that was another reason we wanted to expand that. We wanted to have more room uh, in the shoulder and elbow journal world um, for those good articles to get published and, and not have them show up in other journals because um, we think it makes a bigger impact among shoulder and elbow surgeons if it's in a JSCS journal. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. 
Tell us a little bit about taking over the name of a prior journal. Are there implications for that? Is there a continuity with the prior articles or is is that just uh, an issue of not having overlapping names? Um, maybe Dr. Blaine, you could tell us if there's implications to that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a process. It's it's uh, taken, you know, a little bit of time. Um, I mean, we, we, we love the, you know, the first name that we had, which was Journal of Shoulder Elbow Arthroplasty, but, you know, there were challenges in, in trying to move that name over. And it, it just was fortuitous that there was, you know, a journal already, Seth Greenwald's journal, that, that uh, was ready to be um, uh, expired. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a great opportunity, I think, to, to move into, uh, into that name. Taking the name over itself, you know, it hasn't hasn't been um, you know really that difficult to acquire the name. Um, I don't know if there are any legal implications that, that Bill can speak to, but uh, but no, it's been a pretty seamless transition for that. I mean, there is a, online, you know, you'll see uh, if if you look through the journal, um, there's been a transition period where there there are some hip and knee arthroplasty articles that that you can still access. Uh, through the seminars uh, website, uh, just because of that transition phase, but I think that's going to um, very quickly uh, transition so that it'll all be shoulder and elbow. It was Elsevier's idea because seminars and arthroplasty was uh, already uh, indexed in certain places and already had subscriptions at libraries, medical libraries around the world, and by assuming the name and taking it over we benefited from that um, because libraries would probably keep the subscriptions whereas if we, if we take a new name we'd have to start from scratch and uh, try to you know get subscriptions and things like that yeah that's super interesting so does that affect dr blaine how long it is until seminars and arthroplasties is indexed by pubmed i mean it's that's a question that probably the publisher can speak to in more detail. And, you know, unfortunately she's not on this call, but, um, you know, that was one of the things that we discussed in, in acquiring the name was that, uh, just like Bill said, you know, it, it should be easier than to become indexed. And it's still a process, you know, I mean, we, we saw this with the other journal and it just takes time, um, you know, to, to uh, go through that process and become indexed. But, you know, we're already uh, ahead of the game because of the name that we have, and then also ahead of the game because of the, you know, the rocket ship that we're riding in terms of number of articles. You know, to get indexed, you have to have, uh, you know, a certain number of high-quality articles published, uh, and we're we're ahead of that schedule. So, so I think it's going to be very quick, uh, much much quicker than it would be otherwise. But it is always a process. And, uh, maybe Bill wants to make some other comments on that, but um, Bill, I'll hand it over to you. No, I think Ted said it very well. We're actually already indexed on a couple things, and I, I don't have the list in front of me, but our, and as he said, our publisher knows more about it than all of us do, and she's pushing to get us indexed. We get asked that all the time. Um, in terms of impact factor, that's a couple years in the future because you have to publish a certain number of articles, but the good thing about impact factor um, for authors, like if you were to, you know, Rachel is to publish a an article today in seminars, uh, it does not have an impact factor, but when it gets an impact factor two years from now, that retroactively, you know, will count uh, um, against any age index for Rachel or whatever, you know, an academic place may want for tenure or anything like that. 
uh, just make a comment on the <clears throat> indexing. So the two you know, big indexing bodies, uh, Medline and Scopus are the most difficult to get indexed. And our experience with the JSEA journal was that after two years, uh, our publisher applied and we got rejected on both fronts. And major reason was uh, volume of articles published. So, you know, we just didn't have a ton of submissions. So I think for seminars and arthroplasty, you know, that we're going so strong with these uh, submissions and then eventual publications that I'm hopeful, you know, within, uh, you know, it's been almost a year in existence. I'm hopeful a year from now, uh, we'll have a very good chance of uh, getting indexed by um, Medline and Scopus. Um, well, actually, uh, just one other comment on, on um, you know, with regard to indexing. Well, a couple of comments. One is that, you know, as somebody who's worked in a, in, um, a few different academic institutions, you know, it is very important uh, for appointments and promotions to have, have papers published, and ideally they should be papers that, you know, that you can access through PubMed. Uh, but ultimately, it's the number of, of papers that you publish and the quality of papers that you publish that's most important. So, you know, different academic institutions have different criteria, but, you know, it's it's not a negative uh, in many places to have, you know, a large number of quality publications, even if they're not yet indexed, you know, if they're waiting to be indexed. Um, so I think that's an important issue. And then the one other issue is that with this journal, and, and we can probably speak more to the details around this, but it's it has it's what we call a hybrid journal. So you have the ability to to have the paper um, accessed not only by the subscribers to the journal, uh, but also uh, you can pay a, a article processing charge to have it open access. Uh, so that if you're willing, your institution is willing to pay that charge, uh, it will be immediately available to the whole world uh, without a subscription cost. Um, so there's additional value, I think, with that hybrid model. And also, uh, guys, I just uh, checked our database on it. Seminars is already indexed on Scopus. And um, we're applying in January 2021, or just about now, for indexing on Medline. So hopefully that'll come through as well. And hopefully... Uh, when we do get indexed on Medline, the articles that we publish will get indexed uh, retroactively. So the people that have, you know, submitted and gotten published can be reassured that they're going to be searchable and indexed once we get uh, indexed. Yeah, that'll be really nice for those authors and for their work to be more readily accessible for people searching those those databases and those websites. Um, you know, with the volume of journals and the volume of articles, one thing that has become very critical is reviewers, because as you get more articles submitted, as you guys all know, you need reviewers to get to those articles and turn back reviews in a timely fashion so that authors can move on with their work. And we all know that that can be very challenging. So maybe each of you could comment, um, uh, but Dr. Wardell, let's start with you. What do you think makes a reviewer a good reviewer? And do you have any words of wisdom in particular for all those reviewer number twos out there, of which I know I've been uh, that reviewer many times. I'm sure we all have. Um, what, what makes a reviewer a good reviewer in your mind? Uh, you know, first and foremost is to um, 
take the time to closely read the article. You know, it, it's difficult. We're all busy getting pulled in a bunch of different directions. And sometimes you get a bunch of other things on your plate. So it's really hard to find the time to do this. Uh, but that's really all it takes. You know, we, our, our reviewers are all very experienced, knowledgeable people. So anybody that we invite or our associate editors invite is super qualified to review the article and offer their opinion. So it really just, you know, takes time. And then, you know, usually, you, you know, your first couple of reviews can be pretty time consuming and it's kind of a learning process. But once you get the hang of it, you know, you, you really develop an eye for, you know, what's good and what's bad. And uh, usually, you know, an article you can read and then put together a nice review and, you know, an hour, you know, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. But that's really what it, what it takes. And we're just so grateful for the people that volunteer their time to, you know, read the work of others. And, you know, I always put myself on the other side of the fence. You know, if I was the author submitting this, boy, I would sure be grateful for the people that actually took the time to really critique it and, you know, give us their honest opinion. And I'd like to also put a shout out to our associate editors. So Ted and I can't do this alone. Uh, we've got a great group of associate editors helping us in seminars and arthroplasty, and that's Joe Abood, uh, Mark Lobenberg, Mark Mori, Larry Galata, Vonnie Sabason, Jin Young Park, Eric Ricchetti, Patrick Reyes, Jay Keener, and Ruth Delaney. So uh, we've got an international uh, editorial board uh, and people that are doing an outstanding job uh, getting these articles sent out to reviewers and then uh, rendering a decision. So that really makes the job of Ted and I is so much easier. Hey, Dr. Mellon, let me ask you, you know, with your role as editor in chief, um, um, do you find that you ever have to police a reviewer? Do you find that you ever get a reviewer that's maybe a bit too harsh or uh, straightforward with their reviews and their comments? Have you ever come across that? I can tell you on the other side as an author, um, I've sometimes gotten feedback not specifically from JSES, but just in general, where you're a little taken aback by some of the comments and, and they might be very real, but just a little taken aback. Do you ever find that with your reviewers and how do you approach that? Uh, we do occasionally find that. Um, and I do get an author occasionally complaining about the reviews um, from the tone of the review. There is one reviewer in particular who's otherwise an absolutely excellent reviewer. I, I love sending articles to him but we did have complaints about his reviews sometimes and I spoke to him about it and he really has calmed down and he's not, you know, has not had those problems since. Um, you know, so, um, you know, it's hard to get reviewers and, you know, Rachel and uh, Peter understand this because they're two of my associate editors at JSCS. So they see the problems we have getting the reviewers. Uh, in addition, you know, Rachel, what you said, how do we deal with, you know, difficult reviewers? One thing you learn and that Ted and Michael are learning with this, and I've learned over the 12 years, I sort of know what my reviewers are going to say. Uh, if I want to reject an article, if I think an article should be rejected, but I'm still going to send it to reviewer, I would send it to Associate Editor X and reviewer ABC and reviewer DEF, because I know they'll reject the article. 
and I know who will accept the article. I know what the reviewers are gonna say and what they're gonna be like. So I have to be a little careful who I send articles to. I, I can't possibly send it to the three people I just alluded to. I won't tell you their names, but uh, you, know, I, you know, Watson and Crick's article on DNA would not be accepted by those three people I was just referring to. Uh, they're so tough. And uh, so I find that out about articles um, or about reviewers rather uh, that a lot of them have their own style and uh, some of them are much tougher than others. I think the the format that the reviews are in, especially for JSCS, as, as I review those reviews as well as the articles in that associate editor role, and I'm sure Pete would echo this, I find I always learn something from the reviewers themselves too. You know, I, I learn a little bit more about, oh, this reviewer's looking at that. I didn't even think to look at that, you know, statistical methodology in that much detail. Um, and so I, I find that being in the associate editor role has made me a better article reviewer because I'm learning so many things, probably from many of these more harsh reviewers that you're alluding to. Um, so I, I think it's very valuable in many, many different aspects. You know, Dr. Blaine, let me ask you, Sometimes we have residents or fellows, and probably more often fellows, but even some residents, and I did this, I'm sure Pete did this as a resident, um, where they're on the review committee, they're, they review articles. What are your thoughts there? Do you think residents and fellows should be doing that? Do they have enough experience to participate at this level? Obviously, everyone goes through journal clubs and reviews articles critically as part of their education and training. But to determine publication, do you think there's a role for that? Yeah, and I, th I think... Um... I mean, there's probably some value and some mentorship in that area. You know, I know when I was uh, a fellow, uh, I would, you know, look at some of the uh, reviews that the faculty members uh, were doing and, you know, we would work together on it. Um, and I try to do the same uh, with my fellows is to get them involved in reviews, but I, I don't have them do the review. You know, they may, they may start the process and then, you know, I'm able to complete uh, that. But I, I think there's great learning value to that. So... So absolutely, yes, I think it is important that they're involved. And, you know, some of them do an incredible job, you know, probably even a, a better job than some of the people that Bill was referencing. So, you know, I, I think it is a very, very important thing to learn. And I think we all get to be better reviewers with time. Uh, I, I know, you know, it's taken a while for me to become a better reviewer. But, you know, I think that some of the things you asked before, like what makes a good reviewer, um, I mean, I think you need to be you need to be kind of concise uh, and to the point. Like we don't need a review that's that's 10 pages long, um, you know. But it should have uh, important information that's helpful to the author. Uh, I think it needs to be gracious. You know, I, I think uh, you know there isn't uh, much value in being so harsh so that everybody gets upset about it. Uh, and then I think uh, you know being timely is is quite important. That that I think is obvious to everybody. Uh, I think, you know, if, if you, if you're a perfectionist that looks at something and says, oh, you know, I'm going to do this incredible review, um, you know, and you take 60 days to do it, that doesn't really help everybody. You know, it, it's much better if you have a concise review uh, that you get back in, in seven days. So those are my general thoughts with that. But absolutely, it's important that the residents and fellows get involved. Well, certainly a lot of... Uh tips and tricks and pearls for reviewers. And I couldn't agree more that the review process is so critical to maintaining the quality of our literature. Dr. Mellon, one of the questions I want to ask you about is that one metric we use to judge journals is the impact factor. Tell me a little bit about how you think creating this family of journals 
is going to impact, in, influence the impact factor of GSCS in the longer term? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and I, I got asked that by the Board of Trustees when we were suggesting setting this up a couple of years ago. The, the best way to increase your impact, well, there's three ways to increase your impact factor. One is we publish a lot of review articles. They, they usually get cited more. Secondly is to uh, uh, publish a lot of basic science articles. And thirdly is to request authors to uh, cite their own journal more often in their references, which is somewhat unethical. Uh, there are some journals that we know do it, um, and, but I never do that. Um, but on the first two, with review articles in basic science, um, I don't think we'll lose much from an impact factor uh, standing because of seminars in arthroplasty, because again, those are articles that were being rejected mostly anyway. But if we lose some review articles, there is a small chance we may drop a little bit in impact factor, but I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't think it'll be much. We don't have room to publish a lot of review articles. Uh, we only were publishing one or two per issue, or, or about 20 to 24 a year. And um, with the new journal, uh, you know, they'll be able to publish a lot of the ones that we were rejecting. Our rejection rate was higher for review articles than it was for regular articles. So we were only accepting about 10% of review articles. So there's a lot to go over to uh, JSCS RRT. Dr. Mellon, we know COVID-19 has impacted everything, including JSCS. Can you tell us what changes you've seen over the last, you know, 10 months to now almost one year um, to where the world started changing? What uh, I'm sure you've seen, as you mentioned before, an increase in the number of submissions. But what about just general changes within the journal? And where do you see the future over the next six months to six years with regard to this pandemic? We um, saw a huge increase in submissions last year, about a 25 percent increase in one year. We normally go up about eight to 10% a year. That was universal among orthopedic journals and I think among medical journals in all. Uh, I know talking to my fellow co-editors at uh, J J JBJS and at Arthroscopy and at uh, AJSM, they all saw uh, a similar increase in submissions last year. And I think it's because the residents didn't, in orthopedics at least, had less clinical responsibilities for a fairly long time. And they were just sitting around and, you know, the attendings, well, Peter, you and Rachel can talk about this. Uh, the attending said, well, here, go finish up this article. I've got this sitting on my desk. We didn't get to it, go finish. So we were getting submitted all sorts of articles uh, over the year. And, and the way it's gonna impact things in the future, I doubt we'll see a drop off this year. I don't think we'll see a 25% increase again, but, uh, you know, we published a, a review article recently um, out of uh, Boston, uh, J.P. Warner, Andy Jawa, and uh, Mariano Men Menendez. And, and going back to your question about fellows, Mariano is a fellow with uh, Andy Jawa at New England Baptist, who's, you know, his reviews are as good as any review I ever get. And, and he's also written a ton of articles. He's a future superstar of our journal. And uh, they wrote an article on COVID-19 and telemedicine and how this is changing the world of orthopedics and how it's gonna change it in the future. And I think it will change it somewhat in the future. I don't think it will change it maybe as much as people think. Cause I think once we get everybody vaccinated and 
you know, the cases and deaths drop off, I think we'll somewhat revert to normal, you know, regression to the mean, but I think we will change at least somewhat. And uh, I, how that will affect us in the long term, you know, I, I'm no longer practicing clinically, so maybe Ted and Michael can uh, address that better than I can. Yeah, I can make a comment. I mean, I think, uh, I think telemedicine is here to stay. I mean, I, I don't know if it'll be to the same level that we're doing now, um, but uh, I do think, you know, that there is a, will be a role for it. I think what'll be interesting, and, and you know, maybe Bill can speak to this as well, uh, or others is, you know, what is the role for for telemedicine in, in doing research studies and evaluating patients? I mean, it, it, can we trust anything that we do through telemedicine uh, as appropriate data to publish? Bill, do you have any comments on that? Well, we've had a couple uh, submissions uh, along those lines, Ted, looking at, um, uh, actually one of them came from my former institution, Duke, um, looking at, you know, kind of, uh, uh, patient outcomes measured by telemedicine, and then they got them back in for an inpatient visit and did patient outcomes by that to see how they compared. And they were relatively uh, similar. I don't think the patients like it as much. I think the, you, you know, the, uh, um, you know, head-to-head -head interaction between doctor and patient, the patients prefer. I think for sure telemedicine's here to stay, and I can see it in my practice now. Uh, patients actually requesting it you know, for a MRI follow-up visit, for instance, and it makes all the sense in the world. There's no reason a patient needs to drive to your office and sit in your waiting room and go into the exam room to go over an MRI result. Um, I also wonder, once we get this whole pandemic behind us, if we see, you know, at the beginning we had the, you know, increase in submissions. Uh, I'm wondering if once it gets behind us, we have a little bit of a dip because I think there's a lot of patients out there that are holding back, especially those, you know, elderly patients, at least I'm seeing that in my area, uh, that are afraid to come in. And even though the numbers are reasonable and the hospitals are open and we're doing surgery, elective surgery and whatnot, I think they're still holding back. And I think finally, once we get that herd immunity, that's gonna be uh, really busy for a lot of surgeons. So we might see a little bit of a dip. Well, certainly interesting times with COVID-19 unpredictable future. Dr. Mallon, you hinted about this a little bit, but I wonder if you might give us a, an update on JSCS. How many submissions did we see in 2020? Um, how many publications did we see in 2020? What's the current accept rate? Um, we saw just under 1,800 uh, submissions for 2020, and that's as opposed to 2019 when we had 1,415. So again, a 25% increase. Uh, we accepted about 360 articles. Uh, we published 12 issues now. Um, again, when I started 12 years ago, we only had six issues a year. Um, and we also published a supplement. Uh, the supplement for the last couple of years has been a fellows issue uh, to coincide with the San Diego Shoulder Institute course in June. Um, and we'll publish that again this year. We're also probably uh, looking at publishing another supplement this year, although the the details of that are we're still working on. Certainly phenomenal growth. And um, I think I speak for everyone in our society when I say that we've just seen um, with the growth, I don't think we've seen any drop off in quality. When I, when I read GSCS, 
I'm constantly astounded by the volume of high quality research taking place in our field. I, I often say I'll read it and I'll, I'll feel like, God, I mean, I got to get back to the drawing board and do better work because I'm just astounded by all the great stuff everyone's doing. You know, the growth of shoulder and elbow has been amazing. I, I'm the oldest one of the group, I'm sure. And when I was a resident at Duke, uh, my second year in residency, 1986, I told one of the attendings I wanted to specialize in shoulders and elbows. And he said, he told me, you can't do that. He said, there's only like three specialists in the country who do it. And, um, you know, I went off and did a fellowship with Rich Hawkins. I came back to North Carolina. I was the first person in North Carolina to be, to sort of hang my shingle out as a shoulder and elbow specialist. Now in Raleigh, Durham, there's like 10 of them, uh, you know, so the field has expanded dramatically in, you know, 30 years. Well, certainly as, as our field has expanded, I think our research has improved and increased in quantity and quality. And um, GSCS has been such a big part of that. So thank you guys again for taking your time to come on the podcast. I, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking your time. And I think listeners will find this valuable to better understand the current landscape. Thank you, Peter. Great. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter and Rachel. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Rachel. Guys, that's a wrap for this podcast. We want to thank you so much. This is really all the time we have. Uh, one final note, I think for all the listeners out there, what you can gather is submit your work. Um, there's a there's a home for every paper. There's an opportunity to get published and an opportunity to have your work disseminated amongst shoulder and elbow and orthopedic um, uh, interested minds. So please submit to this family of journals and and thanks, Dr. Mellon, and everyone for putting this together. Um, we want to thank our guests for and for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. For Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.